Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Rather than our customary long introductions, we're going to get into it. Rather than our customary long introduction, we're going to get right into the discussion now. Joining us today, as they do every week, for a look at all that shapes defense and commercial aerospace on world markets are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory uh, Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so very much for joining us. Wouldn't be Sunday without you. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, indeed, a pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium was brought to you by GE Aerospace, uh, uh, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. Our coverage of South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS, and our coverage uh, of the Navy League's Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show next week are sponsored by GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, Leonardo DRS, uh, HII and Helicon uh, Chemical. Uh, everybody, w- welcome back. Uh, as always, a uh, very big week and a lot uh, to discuss across commercial and defense. Ron, start us off. Uh, what drove uh, the street and markets this week and how did the aerospace and defense group perform uh, against those broader market sentiments? Yeah, the, a lot of the worry, I think, left the market. If you look at the S&P for the week, it was up 3.5% um, across uh, our group. Commercial aerospace did, did better than uh, defense. And in fact, the, the commercial aerospace names with um, maybe more extended balance sheets did better um, as a trend. So it, it kind of suggests that uh, the, the market was getting more comfortable with risk. Uh, another thing we look at, we've talked about in the past, is the VIX index. And it's been trading in this range between 20 to 30. It was recently as high as 30. Um, and this week it was down at 20, right? It also suggests that. When you look at individual stocks in our universe of the large caps, the best performing this week was Boeing. It was up seven and a half percent. Generally, the defense complex was up about a percent and a half. Uh, but then if you look at some of the, the smaller names, Spirit Aerosystems was up uh, over 12 percent. Triumph Group was up over 11 percent. Uh, Terran Orbital, which is a commercial space company, was up almost 15 percent. Kind of in line with that trend that you know, there's more comfort uh, with risk in the market. Uh, the the 10-year the yield is down at 3.5%. Uh, you know, earlier in March, it was as high as 4%. So you saw it drop drop a lot uh, 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 in that case. And WTI um, oil uh, uh, was 76. Brent crude was 80. So it was all in um, a relatively calm week in the market, given all the you know, macro factors, market factors, bank factors, industry factors, everything kind of going on in the world. But this week was a, was a relatively calm week uh, in the markets. Uh, and uh, we're going to uh, take a look at some of the comments uh, that came out of uh, Stan Deal, head of Boeing Commercial uh, Airplanes, uh, in, in a moment, which could explain some of that uh, positive sentiment. Sash, how would you characterize the week in Europe and how the group performed? The, the sector overall in Europe was up about a percent, cents and a half over the week. But there were um, 
most of the stocks were not moving very much at all. It's been fascinating that, you know, in the, the whole of this year, Airbus has uh, moved less than um, uh, less than five percent plus or minus. Uh, it, it, it really is a couple of euros up one week, a couple of euros down the other, and trading about 123 at the moment. Um, there were, I would say, four standouts in the European sector, two of which were really driven by receipt of orders or the hope of receipt of orders. Um, so Rheinmetall was up 7% this week, um, uh, up to 274 euros. Uh, it's been an astonishing performer. And I think the, the big driver there was that uh, Chief Executive Armin Papaga had another meeting with Ukrainian President Vladimir uh, Zelensky. Um, he is pushing, and Ukraine seems to be very keen, to uh, create a, a capability to produce modern uh, main battle tanks in uh, the Ukraine. Rheinmetall is offering its Panther um, uh, design, which is a very, very heavily upgraded, effectively it's a, it's a son of Leopard 2 or a cousin of Leopard 2. Um, and given that Rheinmetall is also currently delivering uh, increasing quantities of artillery ammunition, medium calibre ammunition uh, to um, Ukraine and uh, what are referred to as ring swaps, i.e. they are delivering uh, vehicles to Eastern European countries, which then deliver their vehicles onto, onto Ukraine. Um, the, the investors seem pretty upbeat about the prospect for uh, Rheinmetall's order intake derived from Ukraine to continue to be very healthy this year. The other stock I've highlighted is Saab, up 5%. Um, and there the story is that they got a, an order. It's not a very big one, actually. It's 350 million crowns. And remember, it's about eight, eight crowns to the dollar. Um, with the NATO um, uh, procurement and support and procurement agency for the Carl Gustav anti-armor weapon and the 84 single-use weapon. Um, uh, investors are seeing this as being sort of part of the NATO dividend. Sweden joins NATO, they get into the um, NSPA, of, on, onto the NSPA list, and then you just start getting call-offs from, from across NATO on a much more uh, smooth basis. Interesting also that uh, the British Army is now admitting that it not only is ordering more Carl Gustavs, but has been operating for some time. The British Army was a user of Carl Gustav nearly 40, well, 40 30 years ago. Um, right. So it took a bit of a break, but has come back and realised how good it is. So that's really, you know, it's, it's quite unusual to have two specific orders or hopes for orders that drive such strong performance. But that really was the week in, uh, the week in Europe. Uh, and it's, uh, it's fascinating to see, given the run that Rheinmetall already has had, uh, that uh, that the stock continues uh, to have the kind of legs it does, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it's the only way that you can directly play European demand for artillery ammunition. There is no other company that has the scale of the exposure that, that Rheinmetall has. You know, the weapons and ammunition business is the single biggest, uh, single most profitable division they have. Uh, and it's a business that's growing in high teens uh, percentage rates every year at the moment. Um, that you, you know, there's no other play, way to, to get that sort of exposure in um, equity markets. Uh, let me let me just ask uh, one uh, follow up, Richard. Thanks uh, for your patience because I want to bring you in on this in a second. But is the German government willing to allow the Panther to be exported for production? Right. I mean, it's one thing for Rheinmetall to express interest, but one of the concerns has been uh, that the Germans have really slow rolled when it comes to uh, exports. Uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't particularly keen. 
uh, on sending tanks unless the United States gave it top cover. We're now talking about transferring or setting up a production line in, in, in Ukraine. What's Berlin's view and Bonn's view of this uh, from a given the procurement authority is in uh, Koblenz? I would think that Berlin's view will be about as confused as it has been on uh, delivering anything to Ukraine over the last year. Um, Panzer is very interesting because, of course, it, it, it doesn't exist yet. It, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of demonstrators, very impressive they look, but it's not in production. It's not in service with Germany. It's not a, a German weapon as such. So uh, Rheinland is doing what they did with the uh, Lynx infantry fighting vehicle and selling it abroad before they sell it to their domestic customer, or you know they may not sell it to their domestic customer. That makes it actually quite a lot harder for the German government to have a have a view and to block it. Uh, there, there are issues of IP. Clearly, they could block the uh, sale of the gun, which would come out directly out of Germany, or the ammunition, but very, very hard for them to block the tank itself, the vehicle itself, because it's not a German vehicle. So there's no issue of end user license. Right. Interesting. Um, Richard, uh, on uh, commercial air, I mean, there was a, a lot of aviation news and we're going to get to that uh, as well and want to get uh, your guys' uh, take, particularly Ron uh, and Richard, your take on our conversation last week on the Air Power Program with Air Force Acquisition Executive Andrew uh, Hunter. Uh, but Richard uh, Stan Deal, uh, the head of Boeing Commercial Airplanes, Ron, I think you were in the audience, uh, told the Wings uh, Club, or, or I should say his acquisition and sustainment uh, deputy, uh, or I, I should say his, uh, his supply chain uh, boss, um, you know, that there could be an increase uh, in rate. Uh, what did you make of that statement? What does it mean for the 737 program going forward? And does the supply chain support an increase in, you know, a smooth increase in production, given that almost everybody has been tripping over supply chain issues in one form or, or fashion that have been delaying engine deliveries that in turn, you know, I mean, Airbus has been struggling with that. Walk us through what you made, made of Stan's uh, statements. Yeah, you know, I think uh, it reflected yeah, some legitimate optimism, you know, for one, the broader macro environment's pretty good. Uh, China is making a very strong recovery given the end of the pandemic lockdown. Numbers are coming back there. They're relatively underordered. You know, obviously, no big Boeing orders for a very long time. So, could there be something there, uh, especially if the Chinese find themselves bandwidth constrained and uh, Airbus can't quite uh, ramp up fast enough? You know, absolutely. You know, there is there are only two players in this market. That's very clear. And uh, in terms of supply chain, you know, at thirty one per month, which is which they haven't really always met, um, it's going to be, I, I think, a relatively easy ramp up if they want to go to 40 or something like that. You know, I mean, it's only when you get Airbus heavily dependent upon its own ecosystem trying to get to 65 and 75, you're going to see, ser you are seeing serious stumbles. I think with uh, with Boeing, it's, it's perhaps a little bit gentler just because of the lower base. Um, the, so the you, think 42, you think 42 is perfectly reasonable? I think it's very reasonable, both in terms of supply and demand. And, you know, as a matter of fact, this was uh, this, according to uh, the Syrian March was 42, uh, which is all deliveries, including aircraft that had been, you know, modified that had been sitting around. That was the best month of all of last year, except December, when they pushed a bunch of metal out the door and just got it over, I think, 54 was the number. Um, so that shows that they're actually able to make some strides there. And, uh, and and get some decent numbers. So I think that the broader environment, and 
and the supply situation and the evidence of March uh, seems to support that level of optimism that uh, Stan Deal uh, expressed. Ron, uh, you were in the audience. What did you make of it? And and Sash, what's uh, kind of your take on on where you think uh, the market is uh, and markets uh, head? Right. I mean, we've seen Ryanair still be uh, remarkably uh, bullish um, and and somewhat more adult. There was a great article in the Economist about that that I suggest people check out uh, as Europe's biggest airline. But anyway, Ron, give us give us kind of your your take and, and Sash yours. Yeah, there's no doubt there's the you know demand for aircraft. I mean, I, I think at this point. That's questionable, right? I mean, it, you know, who knows when we look out in the future, but I mean, for, you know, now for sure. Um, so I agree with Richard without 100%. Uh, I think the question is it's not will rates go up? They will. It's just when <laughs> and how. And, you know, if you look at Boeing's performance, and I guess for that matter, Airbus's uh, as well, you know, consistency of getting aircraft out the door, it's been sort of you know, bouncing all over the place. Um, so once they get to a stable 31, moving to a higher rate, I agree with Richard, shouldn't be that bad given where they are. You know, the, you know, the, on the other hand, however, Boeing and Airbus share about 80% of the same supply chain, right? So they're both captive in many cases to a lot of the, the you know, similar issues. So I think, you know, Stan's optimism um, was, was fine. It's just a matter of, of when. And then just sort of being you know, the analyst in the audience, you do have to kind of chuckle because it was Boeing interviewing Boeing, right? So, right. Um, you know, it's not like... Um, you know, and and tell the audience it, who, but, who it was, but, but it's right? Not, but I mean, it's it not was, like... It was somebody know, it was, from his team. Yeah, well, it was well, the head of supply chain. And um, and it's more, you know, just you know, not to pat you on the back, but it's not like Vago interviewing Boeing. It's Boeing interviewing Boeing. So it's, you know, the, the tone and tenor of it of obviously it was going to be the way it was. And, I mean that's fine. That's all good. And but so I think it's always a question of 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 when will they get there? Of course they will. It's just when will they get there? How long will it take? And then the other question, um, and this I think is, is is interesting. This came up at our our conference we hosted in London a week ago, uh, and this is with you know Boeing CFO. Um, he said that you know seven three seven will not be as profitable as it was uh, before twenty nineteen. So, I mean, I think that, you know, is, is an important factor too. So, you know, as they ramp, that's great. But then, you know, how profitable are they on these airplanes? And, and you know, is, is the change in profitability because of pricing? Maybe. Uh, productivity? Most likely. Right? I mean, you're setting up a whole other production line, but your volume of airplanes isn't really going to be markedly higher, right? So you're going to have more people, more... Um, you know, assets deployed on getting to where you want to get. So your productivity will be lower. Uh, so I think those are all important questions to think about. Fascinating. Um, Sash, your your take? Yeah, just on rates. I mean, I absolutely agree with Richard Ron. Um, both Boeing and Airbus have got to get to their targeted rates and stabilize at those rates. Um, it's a mark of how low expectations are, but it's I'm afraid also a mark of how poorly both companies are performing. And, you know, there's nothing to pick between them that a month when they have a decent set of deliveries, i.e. they deliver pretty much what they said they were going to do, you know, that they're targeting to deliveries is treated as a red letter stuff. And, you know, we break out the bunting and, and bake a cake. Um, that's what they should be doing for at least six months of the year and preferably about nine. Um, uh, but as it is, you know, it's happening once a quarter if they're really lucky at the moment. And that's the reason why Airbus went all the way through 2022 saying we're going to get up to 
um, you know, 55 a month, 55 A320s a month, and then 65 A320s a month. And at the end of the um, at the end of the year and coming into um, 2023, effectively had two warnings and said, oh no, we're not, and it's going to take longer and we can't do it. So get to the level and then stabilize there. Don't just set a level. They can't set a level and then just go out and beat their suppliers and say, why can't you do this? Because that's just the wrong way to do it. It doesn't work. One other point, we had a couple of really interesting calls with um, tier one suppliers this week, and um, both both in Europe, um, they were absolutely clear that when they talk about supply chain now, they are talking really about personnel. It's um, touch labor, it's assembly cycles, it's repair cycles uh, in the systems that have been brutally hit by the heavy redundancies during COVID and where the suppliers are just are not able to recruit personnel on the same standard, the same qualifications, the same you know, fluency um, as uh, the individuals they either uh, who either retired or were were retired during COVID, and that's that's something that's going to take a long time to uh, recover. Richard, I want to ask you uh, about the indigenous Chinese engine that's being uh, developed for Comax C919 aircraft. It flew last week under the wing of a Y20 uh, transport. This is important in part because I think the Chinese are trying to indemnify a program that depends very heavily on Western technology. And you wrote in foreign policy uh, that, uh, you know, a lever that the United States could take uh, and a powerful weapon is to be able to try to strangle uh, in its entirety uh, Chinese uh, aviation that is very dependent on Western technology. What does this development mean? Uh, what do we know about the engine, its performance uh, characteristics? Because let's be honest, there is a lot of cutting edge capability in China. Um, a lot of very smart Chinese folks have gone to Western schools, have apprenticed at major uh, aerospace companies. So it's not like they can't set up rival a rival ecosystem for what is a gigantic home market. Yeah, there's no question. Of course, it's a lot more than you know, putting an engine under the wing of a four-engine transport and saying, ah, it's flown. Um, there are so many things wrong with this picture, right? First of all, they have to replicate it up and down the food chain to really indemnify the C919 against sanctions. That takes a lot of work. You know, next up, avionics, then APUs, and God knows what else. Um, turbines are the biggest hurdle. You know, I mean, the answer I would say is, gee, why hasn't France done it? <laughs> major, major, major aerospace industrial powers have not seen the ability or, or, or bandwidth or whatever to create commercial jet engine establishments. Obviously, Safford is a terrific partner for GE. Can they or would they do their own large commercial turbofan? Oh, my God, that would be an enormous reach. Um, only two countries and three companies in the entire world do large commercial engines. And that's because of the huge amount of runway you need to get to a place where you produce a competitive product. Now, let's also focus for a moment on the big difference between what you need to be competitive in the airline business and what is good enough. Can anyone do, especially the Chinese do, a good enough engine that powers a combat aircraft? Absolutely. They'll get there, you know, military aircraft of all sorts will have Chinese engines. Many of them do already. 
that'll keep going, you know, and you can be second good, second or second place or not as competitive. Uh, all you do is take a few more casualties, have to build a few more airframes in order to account for the ones that are not fully maintainable. Not the end of the world. Russia did the Soviet Union did this for decade after decade, and they produced a, a pretty good air military. It seems to have come undone over the past 30 years since the Soviet Union collapsed, but back in the day, they were formidable. Um, now, commercial airlines, oh, that's very different. If you were only 95% as good, your airline is bankrupt. You cannot use that equipment. That's the big difference between the kind of military design parameters the Chinese are coming from and the reality in the commercial world that has created such enormous barriers to entry around Rolls-Royce, GE, and Pratt & Whitney. Uh, that's just a fact of life. Are, are, are you bankrupt or are you just operating inefficiently? I mean, people were making money flying you know, stratoliners. This is a great question. The question is, do you close the borders? In other words, do you absolutely say, yes, you must operate this jet. Nobody else with an alternative jet can operate. If that's the case, if you want that kind of Soviet ecosystem, and that's exactly what the Soviet Union did. They said, no, you can't have an Airbus. You can't have a Boeing. You can't have a GE, a Pratt, a Rolls-Royce. You will operate an Ilyushin with a Solovyev engine. Have a nice day. And that was fine. You'd get by. That's what, if what, that's what China, that, that's the tremendously successful economic, uh, you know, paradise that China wants to embrace. Have at it. Now, if they open borders, it's very simple. If one guy has an Airbus and the other guy has a C919 with a, with a Chinese engine, not only can the other guy out-profit you, he can also outprice you. It makes its own gravy. You're dead in a week if you're the competing airline. Ron and Sash, you guys want to weigh in uh, on the engine development? What does it mean and where does it uh, put us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable that the Chinese will develop their own engine. I mean, I think Richard's points are all good. Uh, if you're going to be selling that engine in your own market and you don't really focus on the economics of your airlines because your airlines are mostly all owned by the state, um, then maybe it's a little bit of a different situation in the Chinese domestic market. But most certainly outside of China, where that's not the case, uh, Richard's, I think, dead on right. Um, the only place where I, I might push back a little bit is they will get there eventually, right? I mean, you know, they've they've gone to the moon. Um, they've got a lot of smart folks, lots of them, um, and very deep pockets. It's just a matter of time. How long is it going to take uh, for them eventually to get there? Sash, we've done. I mean, we've done some guesstimating on the on Chinese um, airframe and engine development costs. Um, it's part. It's partly based on you know what would equivalent costs be in the West. Um, but also, you know, China labor costs are way cheaper. A huge amount of the, the work done is sort of subsidized. On the other hand, it takes it takes them longer. The cycle times for the ARJ21 or C919 were multiples even of the worst sort of performances of uh, Boeing and Airbus. Um, and, that, you know, our estimate is that, you know, by the middle of this decade, end of this decade, China will spend the thick end of 15 billion on um, uh, their first major uh, aero engine. Um, will that get it there? I, I completely agree with, with Richard. You know, if, if it's 5% short in, in um, fuel burn, it cannot be sold outside China. 
um, and think about how many Russian aircraft, Soviet aircraft were, were genuinely sold outside the Soviet Union. I mean, infinitesimally small because they were totally uncompetitive. Now, friendship rates, yeah, perhaps. Um, but, but also the engine doesn't just have to have immaculate fuel burn uh, and GE, Pratt, Rolls spend billions each year fighting for the next 0.1 of a percent of fuel burn. They also, you know, spend similar amounts for the next 0.1% of dispatch reliability. And I think this is something where, yeah, the Chinese will get there eventually. But just as we had with the Chinese launching C919 uh, and then Boeing and Airbus launching, first of all, the three, the A320 Neo and then the 737 Max, you know what? The West is going to move the goalposts. They're just going to get better again. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I've been a huge bull of the of the C919 because I think Chinese airlines will be forced to fly the thing. But the engine, I think that's going to get really, really difficult. Uh, and you know, it might well be that um, a proportion of C919s are built with an indigenous engine and they just sit on the runway. So, you know, beside a runway somewhere, you know, adorn a, a central Chinese um, airport somewhere because they won't be economic to operate. Adorn. Uh, very, uh, very good word. Um, uh, a quick uh, note to our audience to please check out our weekly podcast, Canvas Ships, hosted by Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our one and only Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with our uh, own uh, JJ uh, Gertler, our uh, uh, newest contributing uh, editor. Richard, uh, let me go to you or, or, or Ron to you. Um, we hosted Andrew Hunter uh, on uh, our Air Power podcast. We talked uh, everything about from uh, NGAD, uh, the next generation air dominance aircraft, uh, to the uh, AETP engine, uh, which is uh, the um, effort it, it came from the alternate engine program. It can be an alternate engine for the F-35 uh, at some point, but it's also designed to develop uh, adaptive cycle uh, technologies uh, to build better fighter engines uh, for the future. It's an ongoing competition with, between General Electric and Pratt and & Whitney, uh, in part because of concerns uh, that the F-135 engine that Pratt makes is running out of power, running out of cooling for the, for the future of the jet. And, and the new engine, offers 30% more power uh, and, and significantly better cooling. And yet the Air Force didn't, didn't execute that. Richard, let me sort of start you off, right? That conversation covered everything from uh, the Arrow hypersonic missile that has had some problems and the Air Force decided not to move uh, into production. Um, you know, what, what were some of the things that jumped out in that, in our conversation with Andrew that you think is worth uh, discussing? And I have a deeper question about F-35 that I wanna ask all of you because without doing the, the new engine, my suspicion is if, if you're upgrading the engine and that's going into service around 2030, right? The engine core upgrade uh, would be around a 2030, 2032 uh, thing, you know, and you're going to be fielding the next generation air dominance aircraft by the Air Force, uh, the collaborative combat aircraft, which is the unmanned adjunct. And then you've got FAXX, which the Navy is doing, all of which are kind of coming into service into the early 2030s. The cynic would say, you actually don't need a brand new engine uh, for that program. We can discuss that in a minute. Richard, what were some of the things that jumped out at you in, in, the, in our conversation with Andrew that you think are, are worth highlighting and discussing? 
Yeah, uh, fascinating conversation. Absolutely, kudos for that. I, you know, I, a number of things struck uh, struck me as uh, as important. He implied that Arrow wasn't dead yet. It seemed a bit of a money python moment to me, but who knows? Um, now, the- well, I mean, they just didn't move it into production, right? I mean, so you could argue that it's going to stay in development for a little bit longer, uh, as opposed to uh, not. Right. Yeah. I mean, but it, it's sort of my broader theme in hypersonics that all sounds great, but aren't we boy, building upon a, a, a half a century or more of, shall we say, dashed hopes and expectations for technology maturation with hypersonics? And the answer, I think, is clearly yes. I have a copy of uh, Dr. Dick Howley, a great, uh, great hypersonic researcher and historian, who uh, wrote The Hypersonic Revolution, Volume 1, 1921 to 1956, I believe. Was, I mean, we're, we're still waiting on the promise of hypersonics and people's expectations of doing, you know, Arrow has been around as one of the premier hallmark hypersonic programs and whoops, doesn't make it, not going to move to production, move our, move our effort to hack them. You know, it, it just seems like it's part of a broader story that uh, generally gets neglected because everyone so badly wants hypersonics to work out. Um, that was I, I, should point, I should point out that the Army uh, and the Navy are moving ahead with their hypersonic uh, right, uh, intercontinental precision sure. strike weapon. So, sure. you know, so it's, it's not like it's totally uh, stalled, whereas the Air right. Force did want to go to a less expensive air breathing uh, system. And again, you mentioned Hackam. But anyway, please continue. Right. Yes, for now, they're going ahead. <laughs> um, it's just that be prepared for further disappointment, I guess, is my number one message. Uh, Mr. Pravin Parmar, the colleague of mine when I was at Teal Group used to be a hypersonics guy back in the 60s. And of course, he was one of those people who said, ah, yes, scramjets, you know, kind of like lighting a match in a hurricane and a lantern, you know, or something like that. I mean, it's just so many huge challenges. Um, Obviously, F-35 alternate engine, fascinating. Um, You know, he he certainly left the door, you know, uh, to a further upgrade down the road. But in the here and now, I think it was pretty clear that this is sort of a business case decision, which was a point made by the Government Accountability Office in testimony before the House just a couple of days ago that, hey, the business case isn't 100% there. And I think the fundamental problem is that, yes, the Air Force quite possibly wants it. No one else is willing to pay for it, not allies who don't want to be stuck with their, you know, re-engineering mid-course as they, they ramp up their intake of F-35s. Certainly not the Navy, which has always been ambivalent about the Charlie model, and uh, not the Marines either, because the B model isn't there yet for, you know, taking the new engine. So basically the entire bill would fall to the Air Force and all the risk and all the, the stand-up and whatever. And I, I think there was a clear implication that this might be an easier call down the road. Um, will it ever happen? I don't know. But, you know, one would think as the, you know, adaptive engine technology is matured for NGAD, uh, then it would be easier. But I don't know. Right now, it just seemed like it was purely an economics issue. Um, but let me ask one follow-up, right? I mean, we're, we were looking to do AETP, and now we're talking about sort of AETP technologies informing the next, <laughs> the, uh, the next generation, uh, adaptive engine uh, program, right? What's the formal structure and framework of that? Because so far there's been this nebulous future engine. ATP was seen as a bridge or an ability to alternate engine. I mean, we're talking about a 60,000 pound thrust engine. It doesn't work for the Bravo because the lift shaft uh, and the lift unit is not stressed for that. 
So that would have to be re-engineered, although the engine is designed to be a smooth fit, whether to into the Charlie or, or into the Alpha, right into the naval variant. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously you would have to do a little bit of work, but not a lot of work uh, because both of the companies have been told design this in such fashion that it's an easy uh, uh, upgrade. I mean, do, do you have any sense on what the roadmap, how does this program that's been ongoing for a bunch of years and in which we've already spent a lot of money uh, over the last 15 years goes into this next program? And, and what about my sort of underlying cynicism that, you know, we've already said the F-35 is going to be the low of our future high-low mix. If you're racing to NGAD and you're racing to FAXX, is that why you look at the F-35 as being not terribly relevant post-2035 or 2030 for our purposes? Or is that too cynical? I think it might be a little cynical. You can't rule out that out as a possibility. Um, but another possibility is that, you know, it's been a long road to adaptive. You know, I remember taking back, of course, the YF-120, the losing GE competitor for the ATF that became the F-22 way back in the day. Um, and... It's been, you know, and even before then, there were experiments in, in variable geometry, if you will, engines, you know, that allow for adaptive bypass. Um, I would think that given the, you know, this works or nothing approach, which I think is going on with NGAD, you know, it's going to be adaptive, that maybe that will allow for a lot of R&D resources down the road to mature this that maybe will put less of the technology development risk and burden on the F-35, making this an easier decision towards the end of the decade. That's my kind of hope, expectation. I think also uh, Mr. Hunter's comments about, um, you know, maybe it'll give both companies a bit more access to technology development to make it more, I think he's at a true competition if memory serves. Maybe that's an aspect too. Uh, in that. In other words, I don't think this is dead. So I understand where your cynicism comes from. Hey, I always do. <laughs> We're old friends, but you know, uh, I'm not entirely sure that that's the case completely here. I think there might be just a case made, well, sort of a mix of short-term economics concerned as outlined by the GAO and long-term prospects for more technology cash bandwidth. Ron, uh, your take on this and Sash, uh, yours uh, as well, because I know you've heard the uh, interview also. It, it seems it seems to me, I mean, if, if, if F-35 is going to, I mean, you can imagine a production run. I mean, he, he intimated, right, you know, 156 is going to go higher than that after three years. And that seems to be supported by the international demand. So if you end up with a production run of aircraft at, I don't know, 3,000, having one engine for all them seems kind of ridiculous honestly right so it, it seems inevitable at some point here you'll get another engine for the aircraft it's just you know what what is the path to that um the adaptive engine technology in my humble view is you know it's a it's a real step change um and and further for a platform that i mean think about it right i mean f-35 in some form or another was was conceived when i was in grad school i'm 55 right so to make this platform more relevant in a you know a global battle space that's now focused really on the pacific as opposed to europe you got to give the aircraft more legs you just have to 
right? And the only way you can do that is you, you make it not stealthy and put some form of conformal tank on the thing, or you give it a better engine or a different engine. I don't want to say better, but a different performing engine um, or both, right? So it's, in, in my opinion, you, you have to get there somehow. It's just how do you get there and how do you kind of distribute the risk? Well, I mean, I, the most interesting thing I've sensed in the last few, um, you know, meetings, whether it's AFA or uh, the Air and Space Forces Association, or you know, as we saw in Denver, was just the sheer number of people, whether they were in uniform or in industry, talking about the need for a new engine in order to be able to keep the jet relevant for the long term. It's gained weight, um, right? We're it's run it's running out of power. It's running out of cooling. I know the engine uh, core update uh, is going to help some of those things. But again, a lot of the language around that, it suggests rectification of things that have been challenges uh, on the engine. You are going to get some incremental improvement, but you're not going to get sort of the step change in performance, whether while the 30% more range thing just alone almost justifies it. In, in my case, I'm sort of stunned. We're spending a trillion dollars on this program. But somehow the six billion dollars for the new engine is the hang-up. It's it's a little bit hard. And and why wouldn't I want that sooner if the Asia Pacific is is my problem and my challenge, right? I, I just don't I just, you know, I mean, at some point, do you just have to rip the band-aid off and say, hey, we're gonna spend 10 billion, we'll redesign the lift fan, we'll redesign uh, the elements of of that jet and make everything current and be able to go to a new engine technology as we did, you know, whether it was the F-16s or 15s or, or anything else we've ever done. Uh, Sam, it, it, I want to get your, your it, sense. It, yeah, go ahead. Can I just add one quick thing? Yeah. And we can't forget, I mean, the Ohio congressional contingent will have something to say about this, right? So we'll see where this all ends at the, at the, you know, at the end of the day, if it's in or out, we'll see. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if something gets added back just because of yeah, right. The politics and the lobbying and so on and so forth. Uh, there's, there's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, at the end of the day, there, there will be uh, politics really played with this. Uh, Sash, what's your, what's your take on, uh, on all this? Um, I'm not just got a couple of points to add. I mean, I think you know Richard and Ron really um, have have uh, dealt with it fantastically. I mean, just one. I have never known a military aircraft that either lost weight or had reduced drag over a couple of decades of service. Um, so you have to upgrade the engines, otherwise you end up with fat and lazy aircraft um, 20 years down the line. Um, if you look at the F-35 Skyline, most foreign customers at the end of this decade, beginning of the 2030s, are going to be looking at either buying attrition batches or replacing other subfleets in their air forces or just buying more F-35s in, in, in general. And if the aircraft has not at least retained its performance, um, it's going to give a lot of air forces, um, uh, you know, some cause to just to think, or a lot of procurement agencies cause to think. Uh, the key issue there is going to be whether the rival European combat aircraft actually happen or not. If they do, then I think you'll see F-35 um, uh, reordering, and I think it really will be a reordering issue at that stage, probably uh, weaker than, than people would like. Um, and, you know, just as the inability of the US or the unwillingness of the US to export high-end twin-engined S superiority 
aircrafts to uh, their, uh, you know, after the F-15 has really created this wide open hole for SCAF, Tempest, even KF-21 um, to uh, start. If F-35 doesn't keep on being upgraded, it opens up the, you know, the opportunity at the, at the bottom end of the market as well. So, you know, I, I'm sure very few people pay a lot of attention to the foreign policy implications of this, but they are quite significant. Um, I mean, my, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my issue with, with all of this is it's an enormous amount of money for us, but it's also an awful lot of money for our allies and partners getting into this. And it's, it's somewhat problematic if you're not giving them some sort of long-term road to the continued relevance of their investment. Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Uh, and, and that the jet was, you know, is, is going to get updated uh and um um you know and and remain current i mean to me it's 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 almost a fundamental relevancy uh question yeah. um and um so it's gonna it's gonna be uh fascinating uh to watch do you uh, mind just, if i, I uh, speaking of fascinating the... uh, no i don't mind at all go ahead richard i okay, see sorry. i see your hand up and i'm sorry that i missed it <laughs> quite all right you know just two other quick points one is uh per sash um Okay, yeah, really good point about FCAST, Tempest, what have you, SCAF, Tempest. Um, but if this really is a world-beating new technological development in the world of turbines, um, what if these new uh, six-gen planes don't have that technology? Because I'm not sure Rolls-Royce and Safran are quite up to the job of creating it. And if they don't have access to the technology development schemes that the U.S. Air Force and other services have, they're not going to have it. That's something to think about, um, especially if they aspire to anything like the kind of you know longer range missions that you might want for Japan and Britain, for example. Uh, the other point I would make, uh, getting back to Ron's point about you know thousands and thousands of jets, right? And the you know. I believe the current guide is that this thing is going to stay in service through 2077. I think the last time I looked, that's a really long time. And that implies that, yeah, look, as per, as Ron said, one day there'll be a new engine of some sort. It, it is, uh, it is interesting indeed, but my, my issue is uh, get to that uh, next generation more, more quickly uh, than not. Uh, if, if, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at a competition, uh, you don't know what the outlook is. You're worried about the Chinese, et cetera. Um, very quickly, uh, Stash, uh, it's yeah. kind of an interesting lull, uh, in, um, where we are Vladimir Putin doing what he does. A lot of nuclear saber rattling, grabbing an American journalist, accusing him as a spy. Uh, but when you look at the battlefield, it's, it sort of is setback after setback, uh, in fact. From your perspective, what do you notice that's interesting at a time when the Ukrainians, A, have done a much better job around Bakhmut, and second, um, you know, their Challenger tanks are in country now, uh, and uh, so, so are some Leopards, and the Ukrainians are looking at bringing aboard a lot of uh, armored fighting vehicles uh, as well, kind of, you know, give us give us your sense on where it stands. What jumps out at you? Uh, that's interesting. I'm somewhat dismayed to hear that apparently the United States has sort of pulled back where it's operating uh, MQ-9s and reconnaissance aircraft after the collision that claimed the Reaper uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, to give us give us your sense on on what it is you you know, and, and we can go quickly around the horn before we part for the week on what else uh, you guys uh, found interesting in the week. Go ahead, Sash. 
generally the the, the battles, uh, the front is pretty stalemated, but it's, I would say it is stalemated ever so slightly, I mean, in the Russians' favour, on the basis that they just are prepared to lose more lives, which is utterly horrible. Um, you know, Bakhmut still is, you know, still stands as a Ukrainian bastion, but boy, that's a really unpleasant salient that, that they are in now. Um, for, you know, for as long as the uh, exchange ratio, which is that Ukrainians claim that they are killing multiples of Russians compared to the number of soldiers they're winning uh, holds, then it probably makes sense, particularly if what it does is to degrade uh, pretty high-end Russian formations. But attritional wars are typically won by the largest nation, ultimately, and that, that's a really horrible um, uh, piece of evidence from history. So uh, I you know, feel very uncomfortable about it. Armoured vehicles, you're absolutely right. Challenger 2s, Leopards, Bradleys, um, probably pretty soon uh, MX-10s uh, and other armoured vehicles are now appearing in Ukraine. Any of your, any of our listeners who, you know, who think that the appearance of vehicles on low loaders or trains in Ukraine means that the Ukrainians can go off and uh, launch a counterattack in a matter of weeks, I would really, really caution against that. There is, in my experience, in land operations, nothing more complex than high-end combined operations, tanks, artillery, infantry fighting vehicles, and all of the logistics, all of the combat engineering uh, that, that goes with it. Now, the Ukrainians clearly had a very, very competent uh, set of armed forces before, before the war. They had been transformed since 2013. The um, they have received a lot of training, particularly from the US Army uh, in Germany, but also from the British and other armies. But combined arms operations, nothing is harder. And you have to train down to the lowest levels. And I, so I think it will take some time. I really worry that even if they get the, the vehicles and the equipment and with the fantastic fighting spirit they have, this is very hard and it's against the toughest um, objective which is a hardened dug-in enemy so uh you know I, I feel that i mean you know this war is not pleasant to watch no war is but this is such a high-end one in terms of the the right. casualty rates we're seeing and um i think 2023 is you know very really on the cusp um let me ask uh one uh, very very uh, brief question because we're already over time uh tell us a little bit about richard uh knighton uh he is uh, the new uh, chief of the air staff, uh, air uh, chief marshal. Uh, he's also not an aviator, even though um, he was started his career as an engineer and is somebody who's who's really admired as being uh, a big brain transformationalist in uh, line with Admiral Tony Radican, for example, the chief of defense staff. What is it we need to know about the new boss uh, and what his charge is uh, as uh, the new head of? Uh, the world's oldest independent air force. Look, if you spend too much time on Twitter, which most of us do, what you need to know about um, uh, Air Marshal Leiden is that he doesn't have wings. He, he is not an aviator. Um, and there is a, a very significant cohort of extremely noisy people on social media, which you know, tells us something that we need to know, who think that that automatically debars him from being uh, Chief of the Air Staff, the most senior officer in the Royal Air Force. Um, I am actually much more, much more positive about it than, than 
uh, about his appointment than that. Um, as you quite rightly point out, he has a very, very strong record of you know, transformation, just doing stuff, um, you know, whether it's setting up space command or running logistics. And logistics is hugely underestimated by uh, a depressingly large number of servicemen, but it's how actually you deliver the force, you deliver combat power, you deliver effect. Um, the clues in the name, in terms of his uh, job title, Chief of the Air Staff, it is a staff job, it is not a leadership job, no matter what people say, the Chief of the Air Staff's job is to deliver a force package, deliver the training, the capabilities and everything else to the commander, whoever the commander is, and frequently will be from another force, and to deliver the effect, you know, in, in order to deliver the effects that the politicians want. So I think this is a, a, a really, really interesting appointment. Um, and I hope it breaks some of the mould of recent appointments where we've tended to have people who have been partisan and very, very focused on the experiences of their previous job, whether it is in Air Force terms, the aircraft type that they flew, or in Army terms, the, you know, the operations that they were on. Um, and that has not served those two particular services well. I, you know, I think this is a, a very, very innovative appointment by Ben Wallace, and I wish him well. Uh, everybody, thanks very much. Uh, hope you guys have a, a great uh, weekend, great day, great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, uh, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Yeah, always great to be on Vago. Thank you.